Excellent singing. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. After the service this morning, we do have a uh, fellowship. And uh, if you are a regular attender and you have not yet paid, please be sure to do that. Uh, If you are a visitor with us, you are welcome to join us. And uh, you do not need to pay. You can come free of charge after the service over in our gym. We'll be having a lunch. Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll be. We are continuing our series um, using this book, I Will, as our, our, our springboard into the study that we're talking about. And we've looked at a number of different character traits of, of those who are of Christians who are outwardly focused, of church members who are serving uh, faithfully. We looked at, uh, I will move from I am to I will. I will worship with others. I will grow together with others. I will serve. I will go. And uh, today we want to look at the concept of I um, will give uh, generously. Money is kind of a uh, difficult subject to talk about. It's a difficult subject to listen to, but I think it's very important. Money is a subject with which we all struggle. Some struggle because you have a lack of it. Some struggle because you have a desire for more. Some struggle because of a wrong use of money. Some struggle because of a poor investment of money. Whatever the reason, it's an area that is a controversy. I'm going to tell you a story about a man named Stumpy. See, just that alone is funny. But uh, Stumpy illustrates how money affects people. Stumpy and his wife, Martha, every year would go to the state fair. And every year, Stumpy would see those antique biplanes, and he would say to his wife, Martha, I want to ride that airplane. Martha always replied the same thing. She would say, I know, Stumpy, but that airplane ride costs $10, and $10 is $10. One year, they were back at the fair, and Stumpy looked at his wife, and he said, Martha, I'm 81 years old. If I don't ride that airplane soon, I'm never going to get a chance. And Martha looked and said, Stumpy, that airplane ride costs $10, and $10 is $10. The pilot overheard them and said, Folks, I'll make you a deal. I'll take you both up for a ride. If you can stay quiet for the entire ride and not say one word, I will not charge you a penny. But if you speak even one word or make one sound, I will charge you $10. Martha and Stumpy thought, that's a deal. We can do that. So they agreed to it. The pilot took them up and he did all sorts of tricks and and rolls and turns and and, uh, dives as much as he possibly could, but not a word. Neither of them said a word. He was impressed. And so he said, I'm doing it again. Went back up and twists and turns and dives and, and nothing came from them. Finally, he gave up and he landed and he said, uh, to, he turned to Stumpy, he was sitting next to him, he said, Stumpy, I did everything I could think of to get you to yell out and you didn't reply at all. Stumpy said, well, I was going to say something when Martha fell out, <laughs> but $10 is $10. <laughs> we all struggle with the view of money. In the book, Tom Rayner pointed out that there's been a shift, I believe, in our, 
in our churches on the topic of money. There has been a, a view of, and there, I believe there are many reasons for that. I believe that there is, in some cases, a, that people have, gr- have grown uh, to distrust churches and how we use money, and I understand that. In some cases, it's just because people have become too attached to their money. As soon as we hear the topic of a message is money, we cringe. We begin to say, you know, don't, don't mess with that. I mean, you can talk about salvation, you can talk about uh, you know, being kind, you can talk about all these things, but if you begin talking about money, pastor, all you're doing is you're trying to get more of it from us. That's really not my mindset today. There are numerous reasons why I think that we have developed uh, a fear of talking about the topic of money, but I believe that the biggest is that we have developed a wrong view of money. Or specifically, we have developed a wrong view of giving to the church. Some think that the church is just like any other business. If we pay more, you get more. You've heard the, the, the phrase before, you, you get what you pay for. I think that might be true if we're saying, okay, I'm going to buy myself a fish sandwich at McDonald's or I'm going to buy my fish, uh, myself a fish sandwich at a, a um, seafood restaurant. You might say, yes, you get what you pay for, but that's not true of the church, and it shouldn't be your mindset of the church. Some think that they can withhold their money to make a point. I read this week, I don't know if any of you have noticed this or heard this, but uh, Target is losing millions of dollars because of the decision they made about their bathroom policy. That is capitalism at work. That's okay, but that's not how the church should be treated. It is not, I'm going to make a statement with my money. That's a, if you want to make a statement about Target, go for it. But that's not the idea of money because I believe that if you think that way, then you don't have the biblical understanding of giving. Some think that to give to the church is for the benefit of the church. And I want to actually tell you that's not true. Scripture actually tells us that in giving, when we look at Scripture and it talks about giving, giving is more about the attitude of the person who gives than it is about the benefit of the one who receives. It's not about, you know, you have to give to this church because without you, the church wouldn't survive. I want, you, I want to shock you here this morning and say this. If God wants this church to survive, First Baptist Church, you know what? He can do it without your money. Say, well, wait a second, Pastor, you're supposed to be preaching to give more money. What I want to tell you is this you will not grow in your faith if you don't understand the true concept of giving. Because you've gotten the wrong idea of your money. We talk about the air of money, it's an area where, you know, it's. It's a, you know, kind of a cat and mouse game. You expect me to come up and say, you know, as a pastor, you know, you need to give more. But the reality is what I want to come up here and say is you need to change your view of money and understand what God's Word says about it. And so I ask that this morning that you have an open mind as I open Scripture to the topic of money and more specifically, your giving. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for Your Word. Lord, we all want to hang on to our stuff, our possessions, our money, tightly. 
But when we really study Scripture, we understand that it's yours. Lord, I pray to help us to have a right view, a right understanding of, of our money and of our giving. We ask that you be glorified through this service, Lord, that it be your words and not my wisdom. And Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. In your name, amen. Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to look at three basic uh, points in the outline today. If you have your bulletin, you can see there's an outline in there and you can take notes if you would like. First thing I want to notice is our problems in handling money. Our problems in handling money. I'm going to, uh, we're going to focus on a number of verses in Matthew chapter 6. I'm not going to read them all right now. I will get to some of them, but I want to read to you right now. In Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the, the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? We look at the topic of money. I believe that many times money consumes us. We don't realize that money creates problems, and if we do not handle money properly, we will have greater and greater problems. Several years ago, I heard uh, an interview with uh, Sylvester Stallone, an actor who played Rocky. Many of you remember those movies. And he was talking about the effect that money has had on his life. Now, remember, this is a guy who's done many movies and has made millions and millions of dollars. And he said this, Money does not bring peace of mind. Actually, it brings more problems. Everything is magnified 100 times more. Um, it's not that I'm complaining, but once you make a fortune, you'd think it would be all green lights and blue skies, but that's not true. As a matter of fact, it brings out some of the most vile characteristic in my life that I can ever imagine. We think that money is going to solve our problems, and that's why uh, Paul said to Timothy, he said, for the love of money is is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving so that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. What is he saying? He's saying that the, the pursuit of money is what's caused so many people to fall away from their faith in, in Christ. And money can cause problems. I want to look at three. First of all, money can cause worry. Look, if you will, in our text, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and, and body more than clothing? What he is saying in this passage is he's saying, stop the worry. How many times is worry, or how many times, excuse me, has money or something coming from money been the source of worry and stress in your life? Actually, let me ask this question. You don't need to raise your hand because I know the answer. How many of you at some point in the last week or two have worried about money? I'm guessing all of you. It is, it is a constant source of worry. But what happens is as we worry, and that's what Jesus is talking about here, as, as we worry about the areas of God's provisions in our lives, we change who we are. We change who we are and we allow stress to dominate us. We compromise our standard because of fear that we don't have enough. A person will justify missing a, a worship service because they have to work overtime to pay a bill. 
I am not saying that it's, uh, you can never miss a service because of work. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is, what is your attitude? What is your motivation? If it's be driven by fear, by worry, then you're missing what he said in this passage. He's telling us in this passage, do, n- do not be anxious. Do not be worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. And then he goes on, he says, isn't life more important than these things? The implication that Jesus is making is that God will meet the necessity, the necessary needs of life. We don't need to worry about it. He's implying that we need to release the grip of our needs and give them to Him. God, I have this need and it's huge and it's great and I don't know how to meet it. And God's saying, then let go of it and let me deal with it. You say, God, but I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family. He's saying, let go of it. That doesn't mean we sit around and, and, and sit down in our chair and say, okay, God, I'm waiting. No, we go out and work and we do what's necessary, but we don't allow worry to captivate our money. And that's what he's saying in this passage. Let it go. Sometimes we worry and we say, man, if I go and I give to the church and I sacrifice, or I give to this cause and I sacrifice, then what happens if some unexpected um, expense comes along and I can't pay it because I gave to something else? And we worry. And you know what? Maybe that does happen. We're not to worry. I love what, uh, what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. And sometime I'll preach through this passage. It's a really incredible word picture in this passage of the topic of giving. And he says in, in Ecclesiastes 11.1, 1, he says, Cast your bread upon the water, for it shall return after many days. So you, excuse me, you will find it after many days. What is the idea there? If you were to go down today to a stream that's, ro- that's flowing quickly and you were to take something of value to you that floats... Uh, and you were to chuck it in the water, what's going to happen to it? It's going to go down and, and you've lost it. And the idea there is you take out what, what you have and you say, you know, there's someone has need and I'm going to reach out and I'm going to extend it to them. And oftentimes we go, okay, what do I do now, Lord? I just gave what I needed and it's gone down the river and there's nothing I can do about it. And what does he say in this passage? He says, wait, wait a moment and eventually it'll return to you. Now, is he talking about a stream that goes in circles? No, he's not. He's not saying your bread's going to come back around and come to you again. What he's saying is this. is He's saying as you release hold of your stuff and you release hold of your money, God will return it to you in another fashion. It doesn't say when. It doesn't say how, how soon. It doesn't say in what way. But God will do that because that's who God is. And yet so often we worry. and We say, I, I, I can't, if I give to the church... Not going to have my needs met. And Jesus said, Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't allow worry to consume your, your thought process of money. And that's the, fir- the first aspect. The second problem we face is money does not guarantee a better quality of life. And sometimes we think that's the case. Someone said it this way Money can buy a bed, but it cannot buy sleep. Money can buy amusements, but it cannot buy happiness. Money can buy companions, but it cannot buy friends. Money can buy books, but it cannot buy brains. Money can buy a house, but it cannot buy a home. Money can buy medicine, but it cannot buy health. Money can buy flattery, but it cannot buy respect. Money does not bring uh, true happiness. It does not raise the quality of life. 
That's illustrated through a a Gallup poll that said that 64% of all couples argue over money in their marriage. They think it's going to be enough. In fact, it is said that money is the number one cause of divorce. 54% of all divorces come because of money issues. We think that money is going to satisfy. We think that money is going to bring happiness. We think that it's going to be, bring something that's going to make our lives better. And over and over again, it's proven uh, through Scripture, it's proven through life that that's not the case. Money does not bring fulfillment. And if you think that, oh, if I can do this, or if I can do that and, and get more money, then I will be happy. It's not the case. Money can cause worry. Money does not guarantee a better quality of life. And third, money can lead to bondage. There we go. Money can lead to bondage. Look, if you will, at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. It says there in that passage, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This passage tells us that as, as uh, people, we are going to place ourselves under someone else. You're going to place yourself under a master, and the question that this verse has is, who is that master? Because you cannot serve God and your money. You cannot, you cannot do that. We all have a master. We serve something. How we use our money is a big indicator of who we serve. We spend all of our money on, on our cars. That's our master. If we spend all of our money on vacations, that's what we serve. Some people will say that they can't give to the church or to this mission organization or to this other cause that glorifies God because they need a new couch or a new car or a new kitchen. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm not. But if we serve God, then we give Him first and we allow Him to handle those aspects of our lives. And we say, I've got to do this. I remember... Uh, when I first began as a youth pastor a number of years ago, the first time I encountered this, it just it blew my mind where I had a teenager come and he, and he was missing church a couple times and I said, you know, what's going on? And he said, well, I'm working now. And then after a while, he started missing more and I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, I had to buy a car to get to work and so I have to work more now. After a while, I started to stop seeing him, and I went and I said, what's going on? He said, well, I had to pay for my insurance for my car, and I had to um, get a, a better car because, you know, I, I was driving more, and so I had to work more, and, and now he's not come, going to church at all. And what happened is over the course of the time, that money, that stuff became his God, and God was no longer his master. We allow our money to lead us to bondage. We see our problems that are created about handling money, but second thing I want you to notice is God's plan for handling money. How does God want us to view money? And I see three things, three easy words to remember about the ways that God wants us to handle money. The first one is this. God wants us to handle money with the right perspective. Look, if you will, at your text in Matthew chapter 6 and look at verse 20. He says, But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
He tells us in that passage we need to have the right perspective. And what is that right perspective? That right perspective is that, that all of this, this treasure on earth, is fleeting. And what really matters is eternity. Several years ago, construction workers were, were working outside of the ancient city of Pompeii. It was a city that was destroyed by a, 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 a volcano, erupting volcano. And as they were doing their, their, their construction, they found the, the body of a woman, a corpse. And as they began studying it, they found uh, it was interesting, they could tell by studying that she was, she was fleeing as fast as she could from the eruption, and, and uh, she was overtaken by the, the lava, and she died in, in hot ashes, and, and her corpse revealed something interesting, that grasped in her hands, she was clutched around jewels. She was holding on to these jewels, and what's amazing about that is the jewels survived, and yet she did not. And the same is true today. Death will one day overtake us, and it's going to strip us of all our earthly wealth, and all that will matter at that moment is not whether or not your 401k was, was maxed out and, and had a ton of money. It was going to be whether or not you serve God. What is the right perspective? Matthew chapter 16, it says this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? What is the right perspective God wants us to have? And God wants us to have the perspective that what really lasts and has value is those things that have value in the life beyond. Again, is it wrong to have things? No. But what do you value? Stop and ask yourself that right now. What do you value? What is your perspective on your things? What is your understanding of what you have? Because we understand that really, as Scripture says, our money is not ours. The Bible tells us that we're stewards. That means we're caretakers of God's money, and so it's His money anyway. And so it should be a normal process for us to give it back to Him. God's desire is for us to not hold tightly onto our money, but to release it. You know, today people talk about investing. We plan for the future. That's wise. There's some wisdom to that. But too often we forget about investing in eternity. We spend so much time worrying about here and now. Giving the little extra in the offering. Or giving to a missionary. Or maybe even going on a mission trip yourself might not help you to be comfortable when you retire. It might not help you to have that, that car that you wanted uh, down the road that is a step above yours. However, if it leads to someone knowing the gospel, if it leads to someone coming to Christ, then you've made a far better investment. God wants us to handle money with the right perspective. Secondly, God wants us to handle money with the right purpose. Notice, if you will, in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, it says there in that passage, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Notice what he says, seek the the kingdom and His righteousness. We need to pursue the things of heaven in every aspect of our life. We need to pursue the things of of heaven in, in our finances. 
Now, we can't neglect our family. We can't say, okay, we're going to live in a, in a box and give everything to the church. The Bible tells us that if we neglect our family, we're worse than an infidel. We are to provide for our family. However, it is not the purpose of money and the things that God has blessed us with in our lives. The purpose of money is to again to exalt God. Notice what it says in, in Colossians chapter 3. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Says, know that your purpose is not to exalt yourself. Your purpose is not to serve yourself. Your purpose is to exalt God in everything you do. The discussion came up I was having with someone this week of, of me personally. Could, could I make more money doing something else? Probably. What well, is a greater investment than serving God? in the way that He wants me to. When I think of a man who understands uh, money and understands the purpose of money in life, I think of the testimony of a man by the name of Truett Cathy. Some of you have heard of him. He is the founder of Chick-fil-A. And over the years, he has been known as a man of faith. He has been known as one who takes a stand for what he believes. He, he keeps his restaurant closed on Sunday to, to make a stand that, that Sunday is, is God's day and it's an important day, even though he loses millions and millions of dollars every year because of that. He's been a Sunday school teacher uh, for most of his adult life. He's established foster homes and, and uh, opportunities for foster kids to, to get and hear the gospel. In 1982, his company was at a crossroads. They were facing a crisis. The, the, I don't know what, what it was about the 80s, but the fast food restaurants were booming. And yet his was struggling. They were facing loss uh, week after week and they were struggling to know what to do. And so he grabbed his company executives and he took them to a resort in Georgia. And over the course of the next few days, they began to analyze what is going on here. What is the problem? And finally, one day, Truicathy said this. He said, we need to answer this question. Why are we in business? What is the reason that we are in business? And as a corporation, they came up with their purpose statement on that weekend, which is a purpose statement. I looked it up this week. It's still on all of their websites. And it says this. Chick-fil-A exists to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on in all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. What an amazing testimony. I don't believe in the, uh, the philosophy that if we, you know, if we do something, the, the wealth philosophy that God's going to immediately reward us but what's interesting, over the next six months, it is said that Chick-fil-A's sales increased by 40%. Today, it's one of the largest privately owned restaurant chains in America. Because why? Because the owner said, I understand my purpose. My purpose isn't to make more money. My purpose is to glorify God. Third thing I want you to notice about God's plan 
is that God wants us to handle money with the right priority. Notice again back in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, what does it say? We're supposed to seek the kingdom of God. We're supposed to seek uh, righteousness. But notice the word that I left out uh, when I read it through earlier. He says, but seek what? First. First means it's a place of importance. It means everything else comes second. I don't know about you, but I hate second place. It's just it's a horrible place to be. You know, you cheer for your, you ever cheer for a team in sports and, and they make it all the way to the Super Bowl. I'm a Patriots fan. It's happened a couple times. And they come in second place in the Super Bowl. It's, uh, that's horrible. God doesn't want second place. God says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seeking God first with our money means that we spend our money differently than the world. It means that, that our, our mindset, our priority is different than the world. I am not saying that just that we don't buy this, the, the worldly things or that we don't buy the things that would be wrong. What I am saying is that our money doesn't matter the same to us as it does to our, to our unsaved friends and our unsaved co-workers. That we have a different view of our money. It doesn't drive us. Our love for God drives us. God wants us to have a right perspective, a right purpose, and a right priority. And then finally, I want to look at what are instructions for handling money. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to First Corinthians, First Corinthians, or excuse me, Second Corinthians, chapter nine. Second Corinthians, chapter nine. I just want to look at a couple of verses there and see some instructions that God has given us for how we are to give. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 6, it says this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under, or, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The key word in, this, in these two verses is the word give. Giving is from these verses is expected, but God is more concerned with the attitude of giving than He is the amount. Not that the amount is of no concern. We see that in the Old Testament. That was, that was a big part of what they did, but uh, He is concerned with why you give. Because what you give and what you give to tells a lot about why you give. The biblical principle of stewardship, I mentioned a moment ago, that we are managers of what God has given us, is very important and taught throughout Scripture. You see, the world uh, views it differently. The world says this, invest, or accumulate as much as possible and invest as much as possible so you can indulge yourself in what you've made and what you've uh, produced. But God's advice starts completely different. God's advice starts from the perspective of this. Examine what you've earned. Know that it all comes from Him. Then give back to God first and live on the rest. The world tells us to earn. And there isn't that, the sense that, it's not that the world is saying we should never give. In fact, charity is, uh, is a higher level today than it's ever been. But what it says is that we are to earn and then give out of our leftovers. Give out of uh, what we have extra, but the Bible tells us to give and then live off what's left. You see this in the Old Testament. 
The principle was called first fruits in the Old Testament. The Jewish person living in the Old Testament knew that the first 10% belonged to God. In fact, in Exodus chapter 23, it lays it out and it tells the Israelites that the, the first of the harvest belonged to God. The first of the flock belonged to God. The first of the spoils of battle belonged to God. Whatever they got, the first went to God. When you think about it, that's what God has done for us. Notice, if you will, at 1 Corinthians, I, I, I love this you'll turn it for me there, Jared. The, I love the passage that says, For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. God gave us His best. His first fruits. And then He says to us, Now you give to me your first. Your best. And yet, so often that's not what we do. God tells us that Jesus was the first fruit. That His raising Christ from the dead proved to us that we too can live forever. When we apply this first fruit principle to our lives, it's a demonstration that we trust God to provide. We say, I don't know how it's going to happen, but here's what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to give back to You first, and I'm going to expect that You're going to take the rest and use it to provide for my family. You know, oftentimes I'll have someone ask me this question. Should I give, you know, before taxes or after? I've heard that question many, many times. And I really struggle when I hear that question. Here's why. Two reasons. Number one, if you're asking the question, then you're missing the point of giving. You're asking God, you're saying, God, um, you know, what is the minimal amount that I can do and still please you? But the second thing that you're missing is what God is saying is, I want you to give me your first fruits. Not, I, I want you to give, you know, your taxes to the government and then give me your first fruits. No, he's saying, I want you to give me your first fruits. Now, should we pay our taxes? Yes, we should. Jesus said that. We should take what we have and we should say, God, the first I give is to You. There are many people who give only what's left over so they can afford it. But understand, God wants more than your handout. He wants more than your leftovers. God wants more than just simply, you know, uh, at Christmas time, you walk into a store and you have the bell ringers and you reach in your pocket and you're like, oh, okay, I got a dollar. Don't need that today. Stick it in there. God wants more than your handout. God wants your hand. God wants more than your pocketbook. He wants your heart. He wants more than, your, uh, than, than just your little bit. He wants all of you. He wants your first fruits because that act says to Him, God, you are first. In this passage, God gives us two instructions that are summed up in two uh, simple adverbs. Notice what they are, and you may want to circle them. In verse 6, the first one he says is, God, uh, God says He wants Christians to give generously. If you notice in verse 6, he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly only a little amount, reaps only a little amount. But whoever sows bountifully or generously, reaps generously. Please understand, God wants us to live in a constant state of generosity. 
God wants us to live in a, a constant state of giving. God doesn't want us just to be generous to the church, although that is good. God wants us to be generous in every aspect of our lives. Generous people to respond first when you hear of someone who uh, is in a, a difficult position. Generous people with your things, with your time. God wants us to be generous. If God has blessed you with extra and you don't have need, you know, sometimes, so often we hoard it. Give it. Give it up. Are we generous with what we have? But secondly, not only are we to be generous, he says Christians must give cheerfully. Notice, if you will, in verse 7, each one of you, as he has decided in his heart, give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What's really interesting is that that word cheerful in the Greek means hilarious. Think about that for a moment. A lot of times we decide to give and, you know, the offering plate comes by and and we've got it in our hand, but our other hand's like going, I don't know. I mean, I'm not suggesting this for next Sunday, but the idea is as I'm giving, I am just, uh, just so thrilled that I'm just laughing out loud. God, I am so happy I could do this for you. I mean, probably people would look at you a little odd. But that's the idea. And we so often just hold back. We say, no, this is my money, God. Don't touch it. And God's saying, no, it's mine. And I want you to give cheerfully. God's not saying to you, uh, you know, give until you're uh, not able to live anymore. He's saying, give and trust me for the rest. Give cheerfully. And what's amazing is that God, I said this earlier, but I want to reiterate it, God asks us to give generously and cheerfully because God has given to us generously and cheerfully. Notice what it says in James chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. You know, God doesn't hold back from us, and this is in the area of wisdom, but I believe it's true about every aspect of life. God has given you so much, and God gives and gives and gives generously and, and graciously. And yet, maybe it's because the reason we don't think God has given is because our, our standards are too high. We have expectations that are beyond what God has for us. And God tells us He gives us generously. In, 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 in Ephesians, it says that God gives to us lavishly over and above. And he doesn't, he doesn't hold back or He doesn't make us feel bad. And, and, and He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to give to you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to bless you and your family. I'm going to give you health. You know, you missed church the, uh, you know, three weeks ago and I heard you say that, that you know, wrong word and that you shouldn't have said, but I'm going to give to you generously because that's who I am. No, it doesn't say that. Notice what he says in James chapter 1, verse 5. He says, He gives generously to all without reproach. God doesn't give to us with a, with a nasty attitude in the process, yet how often do we? That's the way that we should give, the way that God gives. Give generously. Give cheerfully. Because that's exactly how God has given to you. In closing, I want to just give you some action steps, and I don't have these on the screen or in your notes, but three action steps that, that came from the book here. If you read it, you saw that. The first one is, 
make your giving a matter of prayer. In the passage in 2 Corinthians that we looked at, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6, it says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. The aspect of deciding in his heart is the idea of as I've communed with God, as I've had my relationship with God, as I've, as I've talked to God and walked with God and understand who God is, uh, then I give. How often do you pray about your giving? How often do you pray, God, do you want me to do more for the church or, or for this person in need or, or for this uh, good charity or, or for this organization? How often do you pray about that? God says we want to have a relationship and in our relationship as we commune and as we talk, you will come to a decision on giving in your heart. But not only that, we need to not only make giving a matter of prayer, but we need to understand that God has unlimited resources. Notice, if you will, back in, the, in 2 Corinthians again, chapter 9 and verse 6, it says this is the point. If you give a little, you're going to get a little. If you give a lot, God is going to give to us bountifully. I think the reason that we hold back our gifts from God, the reason that we, we give of our leftovers is because we don't think God's good enough to take care of our needs. And what he's saying is give. And I'll make sure that you're taken care of. I'll make sure that you're supplied for. Make your giving a matter of prayer. Understand that God has unlimited resources. And then final action step is Give without hesitation. The old Nike saying was, just do it. Just give. Just give because it's what God wants. It's because you have a right understanding of money and, and the purpose that you have with that money. Maybe you're here this morning and you have developed a wrong view of money. Again, I am not up here begging for you to give more to the church, I am up here asking you to have a right perspective of the money that God has given to you. And I pray that you will. Let's close in prayer. (coughs) God, we are thankful for all that you do for us. Lord, I would be remiss to not thank you for the many times that you have supplied my needs. Many times when you have taken care of me in ways that I did not know how. Lord, I want to thank you. You have always provided for my family. You have always provided for me. Sometimes I worry and fret over it, but I know I'm not supposed to. Lord, I pray that you'll be with those in here that maybe do not have a pattern of giving to you because they view their money as, as theirs that are, is necessary to provide for their needs, but yet you tell us in your word that you are the one that's going to provide for our needs as we give to you. I don't know how it's going to happen for each person, but I do know your word tells us you will, and so I pray that you'll help each person here to have a right view. Lord, there may be someone in here that they're not a believer, You are not their master. I pray that you'll help them to see that what matters for eternity is not this life. What matters for eternity is the next. And the only way that they can have uh, uh, 
an eternity that is with you as if they turn to you and, and make you their Lord and Savior. I pray you help them to do that. Thank you for all you've done. We ask this in your name. Amen.